invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10. We've been going through this book of Exodus for a number of weeks now. We've been journeying through the plagues. We come to the 8th and ninth today. Exodus chapter 10, I'll be reading the whole chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead for with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. 
Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Let's bow in prayer. It's a terrifying thing, Father, to fall into the hands of the living God. Help us now to take heed lest we would be among those who fall into your hands for judgment. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who offers mercy and pardon in full. May we cling to him. Even as we study this passage, draw our hearts to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God wants us to know about him. If you only know about his love, if you only know about his mercy, if you only know about his forgiveness, only know about his grace, and you do not know about his judgment, then you don't know God as he truly is. These plagues can feel a bit laborious to continue through. Plague after plague after plague. Devastation after devastation. And we might rather jump to some other passage that speaks of the grace and mercy of God. But here we are in a passage that clearly presents to us the judgment of God. And it is severe. And therefore, we need to take heed to it because it tells us something about the nature of God, about his justice, about his judgment, about his wrath, about his power. We cannot turn our eyes away from this. We have to look full on and see what God reveals about Himself, And we learn from this passage that God brings his judgment upon his enemies for purpose. These purposes are explained for us in this passage. We've been seeing them again and again throughout the plagues, his purposes for judgment. And we come again to look at the purposes God has for judgment. He's not random. He is not arbitrary. He always does what he does intentionally. And that includes his judgments. And so if we want to know God as he really is, we need to know him in all that he is, including his judgment. And the purposes for which he brings them about. 
And we'll see this morning that God brings about judgment for ways and reasons that we may not completely grasp. One of the reasons is to give his people a story to tell. He also gives his judgment to completely devastate his enemies. He also gives his judgments to display his power. So let's consider the purposes that God has in judgment so that we remember his greatness, all that he is. God brings his judgment first for the purpose of giving his people a story to tell. We're repeatedly brought to a point of decision as we read the scriptures. The decision is, will we let it say what it says? Without reinterpreting it, without softening it, without excusing it, without apologizing for it, will we let it speak for itself? We're also confronted with the decision, do we accept the biblical view of the world that includes a God who is so great, so mighty, and so powerful that he will render judgments upon people and harden people's hearts for the purpose of giving his people a story to tell? Will we embrace a view of the world that the Bible describes, or will we come up with our own description for it? Some try to take the God of the Bible and tame him and make him weaker than he is. They do this by explaining away the difficult passages or try to make it more palatable to our human ears. Some mock God and declare him as a tyrant and have nothing to do with him. But for the Israelites... This passage of Scripture would have a bit more of a personal feel to them. I don't know that they'd be inclined to reinterpret it because these Israelites had endured the agonies of slavery. They had endured the agonies of having to make bricks with no straw given to them, with a quota that they could never meet. They had to endure a kind of oppression that totally stripped them of their humanity by the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They had to deal with living a life that was stripped of its vitality. And so when they hear of a God who is so sovereign as to bring just vengeance upon a people who have executed their children they might tend to want to have a God who is as sovereign as the Bible declares it. For us, who have tasted of the mercy of Christ, of the tenderness of his forgiveness, those who know God to be God of salvation, then you also know what it was like to be under the shackles of sin. You know what it was like to be a slave to sin, to be dead to God, to live a life of unrighteousness. You would know then what the penalty is of rebellion, of the guilt that you carried. And you might no longer be tempted to run away from a God who is so sovereign that he can display his power in judgment and in mercy at the cross. And so you may not be inclined to remove from him also a power by which he can harden somebody's heart and render judgment upon that person. 
you yield after you've tasted of God's sovereignty, the field of vengeance and justice entirely into the hands of the almighty God. And you're willing to accept scripture as it portrays him. So when we see these opening statements of chapter 10, when God is describing to Moses why he is doing what he is doing, we have to yield to him that right and that ability. God says in very clear terms that he has hardened the heart of Pharaoh and his servants. That means that he has made Pharaoh unable to resist continuing in his rebellion against God. He has set Pharaoh's feet like stone upon his stubborn resistance against God. It clearly says that God is the one who has done that for Pharaoh. And the reason that he has done that is clearly explained as well. He says in verse 1 of chapter 10, that I may show these signs of mine among them. The reason God has hardened Pharaoh's heart in making him unwilling to let God's people go is so that God can continue to show the signs of these plagues among the Egyptians. And the reason he wants to do that, he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he can continue to show his powerful signs. And the reason for that is that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. You think, for all the severity of this, all the significance of this, the hardening of heart, the destruction of a nation, God's doing it to give his people a story to tell their kids. He wants Moses to take what he's seen done to Egypt and retell that to his kids and his grandkids. Might seem like a bit of an overkill. But it's interesting, isn't it, that when we have a moment of greatness or of success or something fascinating happens in our life, one of the very first things we want to do is go and tell somebody else about it. If you had a great goal in high school, you're going to be telling that until you're 80 years old. You had some success at work, and the first thing you want to do is tell somebody else about what happened. Or you had some witty thing that you said in a conversation, and you want to tell that, uh, some other people about what you said. Or you saw some strange occurrence on your drive to work, and you want to tell them about that amazing thing that you saw. Greatness wants to be recounted. And we cannot fault God for wanting his greatness to be recounted to future generations. God is pouring out his wrath upon Egypt for the sake of making his power known that Israel would have a story to tell to his children. And Moses does this. In Exodus chapter 15, after the crossing of the Red Sea, there's a song that Moses and the Israelites sing, and it's declaring the greatness of God. The book of Exodus itself is written by Moses to further generations of Israelites to recount what God did in Egypt. Psalm 78 would be worth turning to for a moment. 
Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Jump down to verse 42. They do, did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zon. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Hundreds of years later, the story of the Exodus is still being told. Thousands of years later, there are a few places on the earth that you can go where the story of the Exodus isn't known. It's intrinsic to the history of many peoples on the planet. The deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and the plagues that God sent are well known. So much so that when a plague of locusts comes on today or a a horde of locusts, people are always comparing it to the book of Exodus. Still to this day, we recount the wonders of God that were displayed thousands of years ago in Egypt. God brings judgment give his people a story to tell about him to their kids. The reason for this is again that you may know that I am Yahweh. That's what it says back in Exodus chapter 10 verse 2. You don't really know who someone is apart from their words and their actions. Yahweh speaks and he does and when he does it he wants to be known he wants to be known for what he did in Egypt we're still doing this in um, about an hour the kids will gather in that room and there will be some teachers who will continue to tell our children the great and awesome deeds of the Lord we have a story to tell We tell the story of the Bible, which doesn't end at the Exodus, but as you know, continues on in the story we primarily tell to our children are the great acts of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We recount to our children the life of Christ, so much so that the stories of Jesus become so familiar to kids that they are almost portrayed as children's stories to us. We know the story of the man coming through the roof, being let down by his friends. We know the story of Jesus raising up Lazarus. We tell our kids the story of how Jesus told the man in the coffin to rise to the widow. We know the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. We tell our kids the story 
story of Jesus walking on water. We tell the story of Jesus turning water into wine. We tell the story of the shepherds coming to worship Jesus, of the star in the sky, of the uh, wise men coming. We tell the story of Jesus before the council. We tell the story of Jesus on the cross. We tell the story of Jesus between the two thieves. We tell the story of Jesus in the tomb. We tell the story of Jesus rising from the tomb. We tell the story of Jesus seeing his disciples and giving them the great commission. We tell the story of Jesus going into heaven. And now we promise to come back again. We still talk about the great acts of God that he has done in the life of Jesus Christ. We still communicate to the next generation the wonders of what God has done. And we tell most of all about what God did through Jesus on the cross and how he died for our sin, how he endured judgment for our sin. We still tell our children about the judgment of God, the judgment and how it fell upon his own son. God's purpose in judgment to give his people a story to tell their children. That's not all the purposes God has in his judgment. His purpose is also to completely devastate his enemies. God's purpose in judgment is also to completely devastate his enemies. God's judgment is not just so we have a story. It's actually judgment. Not just for those who are spared the judgment, it's also for those who are judged, and his judgment brings complete devastation. Jesus is so serious about the judgment of God that he says that we ought not to fear men who can only destroy the body. Jesus says in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This kind of truth is not really the truth that you need to take notes about, that you need to write down. It's the kind of truth that you need to just ponder in your heart that our God is a God of judgment that brings devastation upon his enemies. There are a few responses that we can have to this. We could say, well, I don't like to hear it. And we become like those kids who plug our ears when we hear something we don't want to, and we just say, la, la, la. But that, of course, doesn't change the fact that truth is being spoken. We can say, well, it's not true. We can say, you know, God's judgment isn't really true. He's a God of love. There is no devastating judgment from God. That doesn't comport with the God that I know. Well, how do you know it's not true? Doesn't our own world indicate that there are consequences for our actions, sometimes severe consequences, so severe that there are people who get life sentences for what they have done. They spend their whole life behind bars with their liberties stripped from them, removed from society. Some 
crimes are so severe that their lives are taken from them. And that's just in a human government. We are bereft of judgment if there is no divine government. And the divine government is not going to be less severe than human government. It is more just. Our society cannot exist without severe punishment for crimes committed. How much less can the universe exist without severe punishment for crimes committed? So we can't say it's not true. We can't plug our ears. We can't say, well, I'm not that bad, and so this isn't for me. The plaintiff in the case does not just to dec- get to declare his innocence. It has to be proven. And there is a day when we are all brought before the docket of the Lord, and the books are opened, and our lives unveiled. Nothing hidden. All laid bare. And on that day, you have to give account for your life. All of it without comparison to other human beings, but with comparison to the absolute holiness of God. So, we are left without excuse. You can't just say, I don't like to hear it. You can't say, it's not true. You can't say, I'm not that bad. The standard that the Lord brings to Pharaoh is in chapter 10, verse 3. Moses and Aaron go into the Pharaoh and say, and say, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? The standard is, have you submitted yourself to the absolute authority of God? Have you humbled yourself before him? Pharaoh is a paradigm of pride. He is one who has stood in arrogance before the Almighty God. When first confronted by Moses, he says, Who is Yahweh? That I should listen to him. It comes down to pride. You can be the nicest person on the planet, but you won't bend your knee to the Almighty. You have a heart of pride. This question is really asked of all of us. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? For Pharaoh, it has been seven plagues so far that he has refused. For us, how many years, how many days of kindness and common grace have come upon us before we humble ourselves before the Almighty God? Pharaoh is clearly deserving of the judgment of God. And he represents to us what the enemies of God look like. The enemies of God are clearly not humble. They are the God of their own life. They are the champion of their own destiny. They're the ones who stand in authority over all that they think should apply to them. Pharaoh has not humbled himself before God. But the enemies of God are also not reasonable. They're not reasonable. It's been seven plagues to this point. Pharaoh should clearly humble himself. Pharaoh is warned by Moses that locusts are going to come that will 
cover the face of the land so much so that nothing is going to be left. It's going to be a plague unlike anything Egypt has ever seen. It says in verse 6, from the day they came on earth to this day, there will be nothing else like it. He's not reasonable because he's seen the seven other plagues and he hasn't submitted yet, but he's also not reasonable because his own counselors come to him and they say, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, it says in verse 7, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? His pride has led to an irrationality. He has not operated by reason. He's operating by pride, which is not reasonable. He refuses to yield. His counselors see it, but he doesn't. He also represents how the enemies of God continue to try to maintain control when a situation is clearly out of control. He calls Moses and Aaron back after the counselors have advised him, and Pharaoh seems to acquiesce momentarily to the, to the advisors. And so he calls Moses and Aaron back in and says, Go serve the Lord your God, in verse 8. But then he asks this question, Which ones are to go? As if he doesn't know already what has been expected of this exodus. Which ones are to go? And Moses, good for him, stands his ground and says, basically, we are all going. There is no compromise here. And yet Pharaoh continues to try to wield some control on this, to change the terms. Verse 10, Pharaoh refuses and makes this audacious claim. Basically, if you go... Yahweh be with you for what I am going to do to you. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. And then he tells him, no, go with the men. Go with the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. Well, first of all, no, that's not what he's asking. He's just said what he's asking for all of the people to go. But Pharaoh continues to try to maintain a situation and control of it that's clearly out of his control. The enemies of God are full of pride. They are not reasonable. They continue to try to maintain control of a situation that's continually out of their control. They also have shallow repentance. The locusts had come, and Pharaoh seems to turn for a moment in verse 16. He calls Moses and Aaron and says, I've sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. How many times has Pharaoh already asked for the plagues to be removed from him? It's a shallow repentance again. He only wants relief from the pain of judgment without dealing with the God, really, who brought the judgment. And so because of the character of this enemy of God, this judgment comes. 
the locusts. The locust is a relatively small creature, weighing about an ounce. But the problem is not just what one locust can do. When the horde comes, there are millions of them. So many so that the way the text says it is literally they cover the eyes of the ground. It's uh, picturing for us the ground, the earth like a face that has eyes and it can't see anymore because the locusts are so thick over it. And locusts, when they come, come hungry. Priscilla and I had the uh, privilege uh, a few years ago to um, regularly host a team of teenage boys uh, who had come to our church for an event, and they needed a host home, and so they had to come to a home for a night, uh, and then they'd leave the following morning, and the responsibility of the host was to provide a place for them to sleep, provide a snack in the evening, because they would arrive about 10 o'clock and then, at night, and then feed them breakfast in the morning, and then they'd leave. And so we'd prepare a nice snack for these about eight teenage boys, and, um, and then we'd prepare our breakfast for them in the morning. And these boys would come in, throw down their bags where they're going to sleep, and then they would descend upon the food. And you would just hear like crunching and scraping of hands across plates. And then they would be in bed, and you'd see the counter, and it's just empty of all the food that was there. And they wake up the next morning to a table full of pancakes and sausage and eggs and bacon. And you would hear the munching and clawing and breaking of bacon. And then they were out the door, and there's no food left. And so Priscilla and I referred to these teenage boys as the locusts. We had more food in the fridge, so it wasn't a problem. But for Egypt, they had just suffered the devastation of a hailstorm that wiped out the first of their crops. And then the locusts come and eat every green thing that was left. And so the counselors to Pharaoh were right. Don't you know Egypt is destroyed? These locusts come the mighty force, the book of Joel refers to them as an army. There's still swarms of locusts that invade our world. A few years ago, Africa faced a famine as a result of billions of locusts coming. I watched a video of a car that was driving through the swarms of locusts and you could barely see because it was just splat, 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 splat on the windshield. So many locusts. They consume everything. And this looks like creation run amok, chaos unleashed under the control of God and its complete devastation. Nothing is left for Egypt. They are destitute now. The cattle are dead. Their crops are gone. The trees are ruined. Complete devastation. That's the kind of judgment God brings. He brings judgment for the purpose of complete devastation. His purpose in judgment 
to give us a story to tell about his greatness, to bring completely, complete devastation upon his enemies, and then third and finally, to display his power. His purpose in judgment is to display his power. Are you convinced that God, the God of the Bible, has complete power over all things? The Bible begins Genesis 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. The first of God's creative acts into the darkness is to create light, separate light from darkness, which ends up separating day from night. With the next plague, the ninth plague, God brings darkness to reign upon Egypt. Total, complete, pitch darkness. God says a darkness to be felt. And this plague shows the absolute power of God over all things because his first creative act is to bring light into the world and do not think that God is unable to bring light out of the world. He basically says to Egypt, he controls light and darkness. And so with Egypt, they are experiencing the sovereign and absolute power of God as there is disruption to the fundamental framework of their world when day and night are obliterated and there is only night. God has wiped away day for Egypt. We think it's bad when the days grow shorter during the wintertime. For Egypt, they grew to be nothing. And the darkness was so thick that it was like they were locked in a room with no windows, no door, no ventilation, no access to anybody else. They were put in cages of darkness. It says they could not see anyone else. It gives the impression that they couldn't light lamps. You could have the most powerful headlight in the world, and it doesn't seem like it's going to do anything. You cannot see the face of anybody else. It is complete and utter darkness, meaning the removal of all light. This is a culmination of the plagues of sorts because we live in the world that God has made. Earth, water, sky, living creatures, all of them belong to the Lord. And it's all a common grace that we live in a world where they exist, where we can see green, where we can feel the ground under our feet, where we have the pleasant light of day, the dark of night to rest, but we know that morning comes. Water to drink, crops to grow and eat, cattle to tend to. But God has systematically through these plagues shown that he has authority all these things because he removes water from them with turning the Nile into blood. He shows his overwhelming power over the creeping things of the earth when he sends the gnats and the flies and the frogs. He shows his power over the cattle when he brings death of the livestock. He shows the removal of the health of humans when he sends the boils upon them. He shows that death can come from above when he sends 
the hail, and he removes dry land and vegetation with the locusts, and now most of all, the most fundamental of the structure of the world that we live in, he removes day from the Egypt. They live in perpetual night for those three 24-hour periods. And it wasn't hard for God. All he had to do was flip the switch and light is gone. Among the consequences of the final judgment that is to come upon those who are not in Christ Jesus, it includes being bereft of the gracious order that God brings to creation. Hell is described as a place of torment where there is unquenchable fire, but it's also a removal of the fundamental blessings of the created order because there is no light. Amos 5.20 says, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Jesus describes the place of torment as the place of outer darkness in Matthew 8.12. Second Peter describes those who are going to face judgment as the ones who are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For those three days, Egypt experiences a taste of eternal torment, the removal of light. They could not see one another. There's another kind of darkness and light that the Bible describes. The Bible describes that there's a darkness that exists right now. It's not the darkness of night. It's not the light of the sun. Isaiah 9-2 describes a people who have walked in darkness. Ephesians chapter 4 describes a people who are darkened in their understanding. And the darkness of their understanding is that they have no real knowledge of God. Darkness exists right now in the hearts of those who don't know God. They don't walk in true light. They live in perpetual blindness to the reality that there is a God who exists whom they one day will face. But there's a a hope for the removal of this darkness. And the hope comes with another darkness that occurs in the Bible. Because when the Son of God hung on the cross, there was a period of time of three hours when darkness, it says, covers all the land in Matthew 27. Isn't that a reminder to us of the presence of God in judgment? As he has his own son, the beloved Lord Jesus Christ, experience the outer darkness, a removal of the fundamental structure of the world where there's day and night and there's only night, so much so that Jesus at the end of that period cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The light of the world endured darkness so that the people who have walked in darkness 
could now walk in his light. Because Jesus brings to us a knowledge of God. We have the face of the God in the, in the face of Jesus Christ. We have the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that when you look to Christ, you have light and not darkness. You have truth and not lies. You have reality instead of unreality. And when you come to Christ, you now have the light of the world. So that you never have to face darkness. This is such a powerful transformation for those who come to Christ that you're no longer darkened in your understanding. And now you become, it says, Philippians 2, the light, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, the light of the world. And in Philippians chapter 2, you shine as lights in the world. And this is what Israel experienced in Exodus 10. Just almost as an aside, in verse 23, it says, All the people of Israel had light where they lived. Isn't that a sight? All of Egypt unable to see. There's Israel with light. That's the way God's church works now. The whole unbelieving world walks in darkness. But God's people have light in Christ. So what are we to do? We are to shine as lights in this world. We are to take heed to this judgment. Pharaoh continues to obstinately refuse even after the darkness is lifted. And he tells to Moses in verse 28, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses agrees. It's a sad moment because now Pharaoh no longer has access to the one who is interceding for him. We don't want to be in that position. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are spared the wrath of God. And now you are the one who holds out the light to this world that walks in darkness. There's no greater distinction than darkness and light. We yield completely and wholly to God. And we agree with Moses, who says, not a hoof to be left in Egypt. For us, who now have the light of Christ, we don't leave anything in the world. We are removed from that. The world faces judgment. The church is removed from that. And so now we walk in the light. Not a hoof left in Jesus. You're all the way out. And you live and walk in the light. And as you do, you have no fear of God's judgment. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed the severity of your judgment. But for us who have tasted of Christ, it makes the salvation you've given us all the sweeter. We praise you that we don't have to face your wrath. It's been all taken by Christ. We thank you. We praise you. Help us now to walk in the light 
as he is in the light. We thank you that we don't have to live in darkness any longer. Oh, Father, make us this week people who abide in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.